Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And as we continue to try and maintain some sense of normalcy and regularity in our lives while simultaneously dealing with a pandemic, certain potential topics just seem to beg to be addressed, including in the world of tech. Recently, I went on Twitter and I asked my followers if they had any suggestions for episode topics, and I got a whole bunch of different, you know, candidates, but the one that received the most independent submissions was the video conferencing service Zoom. For many, Zoom was something that just kind of popped up once millions of us had to shift to work from home. The company, as it turns out, has been around for a few years, but it was really when people were rushing to find conferencing solutions that it became mainstream news. A lot of you out there were probably using Zoom, possibly for years, because it was already a popular video conferencing tool, but it's just that a lot of folks never really had occasion to use it until current circumstances changed things. Add to that some pretty high-profile controversies regarding everything from internet security to privacy concerns, and you've got yourself a prime tech stuff topic. So today, we're going to talk about the Zoom service, where it came from, how it made its founder a billionaire, and we'll look into some of those controversies. But let's start with what Zoom is, just in case you don't know. The basic idea behind Zoom is pretty easy to get your mind wrapped around. It's a conferencing service that uses the internet. So you can do audio conferences, video conferences, you can do web conferences, including sharing screens so that multiple people can view the same document simultaneously. Uh, it works on mobile devices as well as desktop or laptop computers. It can support meetings with as few as two people or as many as 500. There are also options to have a single presenter stream to an unlimited audience. This would be one-way communication like a lecture. Obviously, a lot has to happen in the back end for all of this to work, and it requires a persistent internet connection, but we'll get into all of that later. Right now, let's talk about the company's history. And the story of Zoom really starts with a different company, and that company would be Cisco, which is an enormous technology conglomerate that does a whole lot of stuff. And among that stuff is a web conferencing service called WebEx. Now, WebEx didn't come out of Cisco. Cisco actually acquired the company in 2007. WebEx itself was founded in the late 1990s. Originally, it was called ActiveTouch, but quickly became WebEx. One Cisco executive named Eric Yuan found the WebEx service needed several improvements. Yuan was born in China. He grew up, attended school, and later college in China. As a kid, Yuan's first attempt at making money involved taking copper out of leftover material from construction sites and selling it. And he found out that the company he was selling these scraps to really just wanted the copper. That was it. So he decided, you know, to, to streamline things, he would go a step further and attempt to extract copper from everything else by burning it you know, burning the everything else away and leaving the copper behind. As a result, he accidentally burned down his neighbor's shack, which he was using to secretly conduct his business. 
and he was doing this DIY copper reclamation project as a kid, burned down his neighbor's shack, and you could say this first business venture was a failure, but unlike the shack, Yuan did not suffer from burnout. But um bum As a young adult, he was in a long-distance relationship with a girlfriend, and she lived so far away that he would have to take the train to see her, and it would take a 10-hour trip by train to get there. Yuan frequently wished there was some easier way for him to see his girlfriend, and later said it was this desire that fueled his motivation for creating Zoom in the first place. He studied computer science at university and then married that long-distance girlfriend when he was 22 years old, and he was pursuing a master's degree at the time, and he was thinking about what was going to come next once he got out of school, what he was going to pursue as a career. Yuan learned of the internet and felt that this technology would be truly transformative, but he lived in China, and the Chinese government hadn't rolled out internet infrastructure and it was pretty obvious that the government was going to keep a tight control on what could come into China once it was connected to the rest of the world. This would be the Great Chinese Firewall. Yuan decided that he wanted to immigrate to the United States so that he could work on projects connected to the internet and be free of that particular obstacle. The first time he applied for a visa to work in the United States, he received a rejection. He didn't let that get to him, so he applied again and he was rejected again. So he applied again, and again. In fact, it wasn't until his ninth try that he was accepted. Upon arriving in the United States in 1997, at the age of 27, Yuan secured a job with WebEx, which itself was just a couple years old. In fact, a little less than two years old. It only had a few employees, but it was growing fairly quickly. And unlike many web-based companies, WebEx was able to get through the dot-com bubble burst of 2000 and 2001. When the economy stabilized, WebEx began to grow again, and it held its own IPO several years later. A decade after Yuan joined WebEx, Cisco came a calling. The mega company acquired WebEx for the princely sum of $3.2 billion dollars. At the time, WebEx was reporting $380 million in revenue, with a $50 million profit, so the company was doing well. It was no wonder that a big company like Cisco, which is all about providing internet and tech services mostly to other big companies, would be interested. Even at the time, people were criticizing WebEx as being a bit too bloated and costly. Michael Arrington of TechCrunch posted about the acquisition announcement and mentioned that several startups were aiming at the same general suite of services that WebEx provided, and that these startups were on the rise, indicating that perhaps WebEx was already loaded with feature creep, that it was getting too unwieldy for its own good, and it was creating its own uh, opportunities for competition to jump up and, and take some of the pie. Yuan transitioned to Cisco. He became the company's VP of engineering in charge of collaboration software. And Yuan stated in interviews that he met with several Cisco customers over the course of his tenure with the company, and he heard from many of them that they found WebEx to be clunky, hard to use, and expensive. He could tell that these weren't outlying opinions, but rather indicated some real areas of opportunity to improve the service. One thing he felt very strongly about was that the service was anchored in a more traditional approach, a client-server kind of approach. 
and Yuan felt that a cloud-based service would be more suitable. He argued that Cisco should let him rebuild the WebEx product as a cloud-based product, reinvigorating it. And his efforts to do so were met with resistance within Cisco. So by 2011, he had had enough. Yuan resigned from Cisco so that he could go and found his own web conferencing company. And around 30 to 40 engineers from Cisco, some of them in China, would follow him and join his new venture, which would become Zoom. Between the time he left Cisco and the time Zoom actually launched, two years would pass. So what was going on in those two years? Well... Pretty much what you'd expect. Yuan was meeting with investors, raising money to fund his new company. At the same time, his team of engineers were building out the service with certain goals in mind. Two of the big ones were really key to Zoom's survival, and those were making sure the service would work on pretty much any platform, including mobile devices, and making sure latency was as low as possible. Latency is lag, or delay. And it's an incredibly frustrating thing to encounter with technology. In communication, it makes things even more challenging. You have to ask, was that a pause? Or is the person done speaking? Is it time for me to speak up? If you're video conferencing with me, I'm likely to think you have nothing to say. So I'll just keep on going because I'm a total chatterbox. This comes as news to nobody. I know that. But we humans are really good at picking up on latency even unconsciously, and this makes developing certain technologies a real challenge, such as really good virtual reality. If you have noticeable latency with VR, it creates a sort of swimmy experience, and it tends to lead to motion sickness. And while you might feel nauseated on some video calls, that's not really due to latency most times, it's usually just due to the content of the call, but it's still difficult to have a natural conversation if there's latency involved. Over on the website Protocol, David Pierce wrote that when he asked about latency and communication, he found that a lag of just 150 milliseconds, or 0.15 seconds, is long enough for us to pick up on it. So the service needed to deliver video and audio at a lower latency than 0.15 seconds. Combining these two goals created a real engineering challenge. The team needed to come up with solutions that would work on multiple devices and not contribute to latency. Some services that cater to multiple platforms take a pretty straightforward route. The service will cater to whichever device or connection is the slowest. So this you could call the weakest link strategy. You deliver the experience at the fastest speed that the slowest connection can handle and everybody has to deal with that. But that means everyone gets a pretty lousy experience, or at least not as good as what it could be. The team instead wanted to create an approach in which their service would be adaptable. It would be able to deliver an optimized experience for each and every participant in a session. This would require a flexible approach in which the service could do things like downscale video quality or audio quality in order to stay synchronized with people on more capable devices and faster connections. It required a lot more programming on the back end for the service to identify what people were using and how to best serve them. By the end of 2012, Yuan's group had a beta version of the Zoom service, and it could host around a dozen or so people at once. It was only a hint of what the service would become, but it was a handy tool when meeting with potential investors. So for two years, Yuan and his team build out Zoom and secure funding with rounds of investment. 
Uh, it must have been pretty challenging, since, as I mentioned earlier, there was already a host of video conferencing services using the internet back in those days, but he managed it. Yuan poured a lot of his own money into the venture himself. Uh, CBS Insights reports that Yuan holds an estimated 18.5% stake in the company, so nearly 20% stake. And that was when it would go public just in 2019. So the company wouldn't hold its Series A round of funding until 2013, when it would first launch. As part of this fundraising approach, Yuan had investors use the Zoom product, and he would hold meetings in Zoom. He reportedly would only show up in person for the first time to make sure investors had access to the service and had signed up for it. And then he held all other meetings on the service itself. It's reported that over the course of five years, he had fewer than 10 work-related trips. So averaging out to two work trips per year. Man, I envy that schedule. But he was using this product that his company was providing to hold virtual meetings instead. He was practicing what he was preaching, and it was an effective way to get buy-in from investors and later on, customers. In fact, there's a story that he would personally contact customers who were canceling subscription services, and he would reach out to them himself. People thought that it was an automated service, but no, it was actually Yuan himself, the founder of the company, writing to them to say, hey, would you reconsider? Which is kind of a crazy level of dedication. He could only keep that up for so long because, as it turns out, it would get pretty popular. See, the product launched in 2013, and by the end of the first month, had nearly half a million users. So keeping up with that many is a little tricky. Uh, by half a year... It was hitting a million users, and growth just exploded from there, with Zoom making strategic partnerships both to enhance the service's features and to become the preferred video conferencing and online meeting solution for several companies. Skipping ahead to 2019, that's when Zoom would hold its initial public offering, and it became a publicly traded company. At the market's open, the price per share of stock was $36. By the end of the day, the price had climbed 72% to a whopping $62 per share. And with Yuan's stake in the company, that would mean that his personal wealth would be pushed somewhere between $2.9 and $3.2 billion. Billion with a B. So yeah, that IPO made him a billionaire. Now when we come back, I'll talk a little bit more about what actually makes Zoom tick in the background. And then we'll conclude with some stories about some trouble waters for Zoom. So let's talk a little about the tech that makes a service like Zoom possible. At the heart of this is the cloud infrastructure. And I've been doing this long enough to remember a time when cloud computing was a term that was just starting to make its way into the mainstream. And typically you get pretty high level explanations for what cloud computing is. And they can range from their services that exist online, which that's not terribly helpful, or the stuff you are accessing, whether it's storage or a program or whatever, lives on someone else's computer, which is more accurate, but not very satisfying. So let's talk about cloud computing and we'll start with that second definition. We're gonna build on that. Cloud computing refers to a system in which a computer or really a network of computers, uh, sometimes a network of computers that can dynamically add more machines to support a service in times of need, 
this network hosts something that remote users can access. Uh, in the case of cloud storage, you're talking about a computer network that serves as a kind of you know, file repository for users. People can access it through some online portal. Cloud computing usually refers to systems in which applications themselves are running on a network of machines, and end users access those applications through some sort of client interface or portal. And it might be a dedicated app uh, that exists on top of a desktop computer or a smartphone or something, or it might just be a web client that exists in a special web page or whatever. The programs are running on this computer network, and usually it's designed for that purpose, and therefore it does a really good job, like a better job at running that application than a more general purpose computing machine would be able to do, you know, like a personal computer. The real beauty of cloud computing is that it shifts the burden of the work off the end user's machine, whether that's a laptop, a desktop, a tablet computer, or a smartphone, and it moves it to these dedicated computer systems or servers. Users don't have to upgrade their devices or buy the latest and greatest computers in order to use these services because the hard work is really happening elsewhere. Uh, we say that the hard work is happening in the cloud, but really what we mean is that the work is going on in some data centers filled with servers. And a person with a state-of-the-art system and a person using a smartphone could have a fairly comparable experience with the same cloud-based service, assuming that both users also have a decent internet connection. And the internet connection can become the new bottleneck with this model of computing. So a couple of decades ago, the limiting factor was the end user's hardware. Like, was the machine that the end user had good enough to run the program well? That was where the concern was. These days, now we tend to worry about the end user's internet connection. Folks who have fiber connectivity and high speeds tend to have a better experience than those who have tighter bandwidth restrictions. In addition to being cloud-based, Zoom can create and leverage peer-to-peer -peer networks. This particular network strategy got a really bad rap uh, about a decade ago or so, when some people were using peer-to-peer -peer networks to pass around pirated copies of stuff like music and TV shows and movies and pretty much anything else that could be copied digitally. But the actual concept of a peer-to-peer -peer network is agnostic toward anything that is shared on top of that network. P2P structures are a legitimate way to distribute files or services to multiple users. So what is it? Well, basically, it's a decentralized network in which all the machines, which can be called peers or nodes, join a network, play a pivotal role within that network. This is in contrast with the traditional client-server model, in which numerous clients all connect to one centralized server. These peers, or nodes, have special software running on them that allow them to connect to other nodes on that network, and they also share some portion of their own capabilities with the other nodes on the network. That might be storage, so you might have computers on the network storing files on behalf of other computers on the network, or it might be processing power or bandwidth, that kind of thing. So why does Zoom make use of P2P networks? In some cases, the local P2P structure might work just as well to facilitate an online meeting as a Zoom server proxy. So in those cases, the computers that connect to the meeting make up this network, 
and they share some resources, and Zoom's cloud servers don't really have to do very much outside of initiating the meeting, keeping track of who is in there, and some other low-demand basic tasks. And the main streaming tasks are offloaded onto the Zoom users' computers. But in other cases, uh, the Zoom server figures out that P2P network really isn't a viable option. And so it will shift all those online meeting functions to a more conventional cloud server-based approach. To determine which way it's going to go, Zoom goes through a very technical process, but I can simplify it a little bit, and it does become important later on. The host of the meeting launches the app and starts the meeting within it, or within the web client or whatever, but the host chooses to start a meeting. That sends a message to Zoom's servers over TCP, or Transmission Control Protocol. This is one of the basic internet standard communication protocols, and a protocol is essentially a set of rules or instructions. The Zoom server notifies the invitees to the meeting, uh, also through TCP, and that manifests itself to users as a message that says, hey, your meeting is starting, you need to join it. And it allows those users to join the meeting. The server then does a P2P check among the host and all the invitees of this meeting, and it evaluates the peered connections between these different computers. If that evaluation passes a threshold of acceptable performance, then the server says, all right, you guys are good to go. I'm going to hand over the streaming duties to this peer-to-peer network, and I'll just keep an eye on what's going on. But if it doesn't meet that threshold, then the Zoom server steps in and says, all right, we're going to have a Zoom proxy server step in and handle all those duties because the peer-to-peer network wouldn't be able to do it otherwise. And the streaming is sent over a different protocol, not TCP. Instead, it's a, a, a protocol called User Datagram Protocol, or UDP. And now we need to talk about packets, because this is also important. So the nature of the internet means that machines are popping on and off the internet all the time, right? So if you think about the internet as being this interconnected web of uh, servers that allow information to pass from point A to point B, some of those servers are coming online, some of them servers are going offline, which means you cannot predict which pathway is going to be uh, reliable, right? So that makes communication really tricky. It means that sometimes a pathway that existed at the beginning of a transfer may go offline in the middle of a transfer. So you need a backup plan if something goes wrong. And the protocols and packets are meant to deal with this. They are the style of backup plan. So packets are bundles of data. Rather than sending a file through the internet entirely whole, computers will divide files up into more manageable packets or bundles. And this is easy to understand if you think about what could happen if you were to try and send a file and it's a huge file. Let's say it's like a two-hour high-resolution video file. Well, you're trying to send this from one machine to another. Now imagine that some server along that pathway goes offline in the middle of that transfer. Maybe you're halfway through sending this file and that server goes offline you'd be back at square one because now you have a useless file. You only got half of it to its destination. And it's even possible you wouldn't even know that something wrong had happened and that the file didn't go through. And that would be even worse than being at square one. So instead, what computers do is they divide those big files into packets. 
And those packets have information in them about what file they belong to, where they're supposed to go, how they fit in with all the other packets, kind of like a puzzle. And they all go across the internet. And they don't necessarily all take the same pathway from point A to point B. They may take very different pathways in order to get to point B. Information that's sent over TCP means that 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 protocol, that set of rules, requires stuff like error correction, and it accounts for all packets in order to process a file on the other end. So it's a little slower, a little more painstaking, uh, a little more concerned with precision and accuracy. It's really all about being confident that your file is getting to where it needs to go. Now, someday I'm going to have to go through all the various internet protocols and explain what each one does. But the important thing to know in this case is that while TCP is a reliable means of delivering information over the internet, UDP is faster. And this is because UDP does away with some of those pesky error checking processes, and it doesn't worry about dropped data packets. In fact, according to Zoom, you could drop as much as 40% of the data packets and you would still get video and audio quality that would be decent. So UDP gets stuff done fast, even if not everything goes as planned. If It's a little on the sloppy side, you could say. But stuff like streaming video, streaming audio, and streaming applications like gaming typically rely pretty heavily on UDP because of that speed. Now, some of you might be wondering why I even bother talking about this, and the answer is because all of this is going to come back to play a part when I talk about Zoom and security and privacy issues later on. That right there is what we call foreshadowing. Now, computer services in general, not just Zoom, also have to work with end devices to get permission to use certain peripherals, namely stuff like webcams and microphones. And because Zoom is a service that aims to be available on pretty much any platform, it means that the developers had to account for the various permissions the service would need to accommodate. Defining permissions is something that typically falls to the companies that create operating systems. There are Android permissions, Windows permissions, iOS permissions, etc. And understanding what this means requires us to take a, a little step back and consider the dreaded layers of computing. You can think of layers as a way to envision the various operational components required for a computer to work. It's pretty clear that when you strip everything away, when you take everything away from the computer that is running on top of stuff, at its core, computers are running on electricity that passes through circuits. This is a layer of hardware And we can think of it as being concrete in the sense that it has a form and that form doesn't change, at least not without you adding in or swapping out components. The hardware is like the concrete slab for a building. It's the layer on top of which everything else has to exist. Now, in the olden days of programming, like the earliest computers, computer programmers would actually have to change the hardware layout of a machine every time they wanted to run a different operation. And I'm talking about physically unplugging cables from one part of the machine, plugging them into another part, or toggling switches, that kind of thing. In modern terms, this would be like requiring you to open up your computer or your smartphone and physically change the circuitry every time you needed it to run a different operation. And keep in mind, I'm saying an operation, not a process. I mean, some processes, like a a program, might consist of multiple operations. 
Fortunately, in the years since those early computers, some very smart people were able to develop additional layers to interface directly with the hardware that was at the foundation, but also allow programmers to run applications higher up a level of abstraction. So these middle layers can send commands lower down so that the hardware can run the programs and and provide the assets that are needed. And the layers on top, the application layers, let you do the stuff that you actually want to do with your computer. Permissions are part of this picture. Permissions are part of operating systems. Developers build applications for various operating systems, and they communicate with the OS through what's called an Application Programming Interface, or API. The API sort of sets the rules for developers. The API defines how applications can call for the assets they need in order to run. Kind of like the rules of how to requisition computer processing power and stuff. And it includes things not just like processing power, but also access to computer memory, to storage, and how the program can tap into stuff like peripherals, including webcams and microphones. Typically, modern operating systems include a requirement in APIs that will send an alert to an end user whenever an app wants to, at least for the first time, make use of stuff like microphones and cameras. This is meant to help protect security and privacy. Clearly, you wouldn't want some random program to be able to activate your computer or smartphone's camera without your permission. Once the user grants permission, the app can make use of those assets, and typically the app assumes permission continues for subsequent uses, which in turn can be a little problematic, but that's neither here nor there. The Zoom team developed apps for Windows-based machines, Linux machines, Macs, Android, and iOS devices. In addition, Zoom has a web-based client, and that does not require users to download any sort of app to their desktop or computer. They could access it straight through the web. However, the feature set on the web client is a bit threadbare when compared to the app versions, and it's not even the same across all browsers. For example, if you're in the web client version of Zoom and you want to share video, you better not be using Internet Explorer because it doesn't have that capability. But let's be honest, you shouldn't be using Internet Explorer anyway, as that browser is essentially obsolete, and all versions apart from the latest one, which I believe is Internet Explorer 11, no longer even receive support from Microsoft. If you wanted to share your computer's screen with a group, then you'd best not be using Safari as that browser lacks that function. Now, I'm not going to go through every feature and call out each browser, but I will say, according to Zoom itself, the browser with the greatest compatibility with Zoom's features is Google Chrome. And I'm not going to go through all the different features because this isn't an ad for Zoom. Suffice it to say, the app versions give more options. And when I come back, I'll talk about Zoom's revenue model and then get into some of the problems that the company has run into recently. But first, let's take another quick break. Okay, so the basic Zoom service is free but it has some limitations. In fact, Zoom falls into a category of services typically called freemium. You get a base level of services without having to pay anything, but to gain access to more robust features, you have to subscribe. With a free account, you can have unlimited one-on-one meetings. Uh, If you hold a group meeting, you're limited to 40 minutes or less. Uh, You can hold a meeting with up to 100 participants in it. And then you've got three levels of paid membership. 
You've got the pro level that's at $14.99 a month here in the US. That allows for longer meetings and more user features in general, but you've also got business and enterprise level memberships. Those offer larger capacity meetings and of course more features. Both of those are priced at $19.99 per month here in the US, but the business level has a minimum requirement of 10 hosts. So you multiply that by 10. The enterprise level requires a minimum of 100 hosts. And so you multiply that price by 100 per month. There's also plans for mobile users. It's called Zoom Phone. There are more recent additions, such as a conference room Zoom setup, Zoom Rooms, that's what they're called. Uh, there are cloud storage add-ons so that you can record meeting proceedings for future reference. So it records everything involved in the meeting, the entire uh, audio and video, plus any notes that were shared. And there are other services as well, all based around these same concepts. Uh, recent articles, like the one I mentioned earlier by David Pierce, uh, that actually has the title Zoom Conquered Video Chat. Now it has even bigger plans, end quote. Anyway, that article lays out that the long-term strategy for Zoom is to create a full suite of services that empower companies to work in a more decentralized way essentially eliminating the need for a physical office space. Right now, millions of people have to do this out of necessity, but Zoom is banking on this being more than just a temporary change in how we do things, and it'll be more of a sign of how things will be in days to come. Perhaps the offices of the future will really be fully decentralized with more and more people working from their homes. Zoom is building out the services that are meant to meet that kind of future. Meanwhile, there's some other things I really want to talk about before I close out this episode. And one of those is that Zoom has become a sort of meme generator all by itself. For example, Zoom has a feature called virtual background, and that allows users to replace whatever is behind them, you know, like an office wall or something, with an image or even a video. It works best if the user has a green screen. I actually tried this with my setup at home, but I don't have a green screen. And I can tell you the results were horrifying because the wall color behind me and the color of my face are close enough that I got some weird video artifacts that will haunt me to the end of my days. But my favorite version of the virtual background was a guy who used the distracted boyfriend meme as his Zoom background, which meant it looked like the distracted boyfriend was looking back at the Zoom user. I thought that was pretty clever. But there's been a flood of creative backgrounds that have popped up due to more people using Zoom. Then there are the numerous examples of Zoom meetings gone wrong. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. I can't watch these videos. I know about the woman who apparently didn't think about the fact that her camera was on while she went to the restroom while also on a call. Um, haven't watched it, can't do it. Uh, they these, these videos almost always feature one or more participants being caught in some sort of compromising way. And it's all because they were unaware of how Zoom worked or they weren't paying enough attention. And that's hard to live down, but then so many of these are making their way into compilations and YouTube videos and articles and stuff that they're going to live on forever. And I guess it's a sign of my age because I grew up in a time where you could do something really dumb, but typically there wasn't a public permanent record of the dumb thing you did that the world could witness at any time, at least not in most cases. So yikes. 
I've also seen clever stories about Zoom, such as a young student, an elementary school student, and she figured out how to fool her teacher into thinking she was paying attention by replacing her video feed with just a still picture of her sitting at her computer. And because her teacher was actually looking at a full classroom of participants, not just one student, it was easy to overlook that one of those students had not blinked for, like, hours. And here I thought drawing eyeballs on your eyelids was brilliant so you could snooze in class. This young lady has definitely surpassed my clever ability to avoid schoolwork. But beyond the memes, there are more serious matters that we need to discuss, and some of that falls into the realm of privacy. For example, Zoom has a chat feature, and this allows users within a session to instant message one another. This is useful if you're setting up the next speaker at a meeting. Let's say there's multiple people who are going to present, and you might have an administrator who is coordinating behind the scenes and chatting with people privately to prep them so that they're ready to be the next person to step forward and take on the microphone, essentially. But it's also a useful feature if users want to talk some serious smack with one another privately during a Zoom session, such as, I don't know, critically evaluating their boss's attire when said boss is on camera. But beware, Zoom users. You see, hosts can record Zoom sessions. I mentioned this earlier. And those recordings can either be sent to the cloud or they can be recorded locally on the host's own computer. So there are settings for the host to opt for whichever feature they want to use. And as part of this process, messages that are sent during the Zoom session are saved within the meeting's minutes. Now, if the host is recording to the cloud, only public messages are retained. No private messages will be included. But if the host is recording locally to their own machine, all messages, public and private, get saved. So those private messages where you are snarking on the boss might come back to haunt you. Now, I gave a pretty tame version of what could happen, but you could imagine much worse outcomes, such as someone sharing stuff that the host shouldn't see due to corporate policies or whatever. Let's say it's a meeting with multiple division heads, and one division head isn't supposed to see a specific report for whatever reason. That could be a real issue with this way that messages can ultimately be shared in meeting minutes. So this is something to be aware of. In addition, Zoom's privacy policy raised some eyebrows once people really looked at those policies more closely because, as I've mentioned many times before on this show, most of us never bother to read the darn things. We just scroll past and click the little box that says we read it, but we didn't really. Kate O'Flaherty of Forbes actually wrote about this a few times and has some great articles on the subject. So according to the previous policy, users would give Zoom permission to collect user info and potentially share it with third parties, you know, like advertisers. The privacy policy seemed to indicate that the data could even include stuff like the contents of meetings themselves, not just user data, but the content of user meetings. So not only would the typical information like your email address or your name get put on a market potentially, you could see more targeted data show up about your business or your interests. Perhaps even stuff that, you know, shouldn't be shared outside a specific group because of corporate security concerns. 
When asked to comment, Zoom reps said the company was not selling any user data, but experts were wary because the policy as written was giving Zoom an awful lot of permission to do stuff with that data going across its service. And while the company might not currently be pursuing any actions that would be questionable, it looked like they had the permission to do it in the future. The company has since revised its privacy policy in order to make things a little more transparent, but the concern was enough to get some folks in government interested in learning more about Zoom's practices. You know, kind of like how the U.S. government got interested in Facebook. The bad kind of interested. Zoom also has some nanny features that people might find irritating, such as an attention tracking feature, this alerts the host of a meeting if a participant has clicked away from the meeting session for more than 30 seconds. So if that little student was actually using her computer to do other stuff, then her teacher might notice even if it looks like the young lady is staring into the camera, she's really, you know, playing a game or, or watching a video or something that could end up giving the whole gig away. And then there's Zoom bombing. Zoom bombing also has made the news, and as the name suggests, this describes the practice of an uninvited attendee or someone at a public Zoom meeting essentially taking it over, uh, being disruptive, making sure that the meeting can't actually continue as planned. Uh, sharing a Zoom meeting link publicly tends to be the main way that the uninvited find their way into a meeting, which makes some sense. And some features on Zoom make it way easier for people to really be disruptive. For example, there is a join before host option, which allows guests to join into a meeting session before the host has actually started the meeting. That's not a great one to have on and you should probably turn it off. Uh, disabling the ability for anyone but the host to screen share is a good idea. There have been stories about people who jumped into a Zoom meeting, turned on screen sharing because the host had not enabled it just for themselves, and then shared incredibly offensive material into a public meeting. So that's a good one to check off. Another one is disabling the option that allows removed participants to rejoin because if that option is clicked on, then if you boot someone, they could just bounce right back in and then you're just constantly booting them. So turning that option off is also important. And of course, a host can choose to set up private meetings and not do a public meeting at all, and thus require every single participant to include a password, and then distribute that password in a way that's more you know, responsible, so people can't just join that meeting willy-nilly. But that's not ideal for every situation. A lot of people want to hold public meetings for various reasons, so it's not always a practical solution. But it is definitely one you want to use if you are wanting to hold a private meeting. You don't want to switch that over to public and then invite this kind of mischief. One other vulnerability I do want to mention was covered in a Medium post by David Wells. This one was titled Remotely Hijacking Zoom Clients. And this goes back to the TCP and UDP stuff I mentioned earlier and said it was going to come back into play. So Zoom uses TCP for important stuff like verifying hosts and things and bringing in commands and stuff. Remember, TCP is the more methodical one, the more secure and reliable approach to sending data. It uses UDP for streaming video and audio because UDP is fast, but the trade-off is it's not as reliable. But 
Wells found out that the Zoom service doesn't necessarily discriminate between commands that were sent over UDP versus TCP. So while a TCP command would have a verification that it came from a reliable source, a UDP command would not, and the service was interpreting both equally, with equal importance. So a hacker who knows about this vulnerability could potentially hijack a Zoom session by sending commands over UDP to hand over desktop control to the hacker. And it gets super technical, and it's not the type of thing that the average Zoom user is going to do. And more to the point, Zoom has since patched this vulnerability, so the whole thing is moot now anyway. But it wouldn't surprise me that now with Zoom taking an even more prominent place in the wake of physical isolation, that we're going to hear about other exploits. Hopefully, we'll hear about it from the good guys, and only after the vulnerabilities have been patched, and not as a result of bad guys discovering it and taking advantage of them. In the end, Zoom is popular because it's affordable, it's versatile, and it performs its basic functions well. There are numerous concerns, many of which I would argue are extremely valid about this service, so it's good to do your research. And what the company does in response to all this scrutiny will no doubt determine its future course. I hope the decisions lead to greater transparency, better privacy protection, better security. That's what I want to see, because I think it does have a lot of great use, but it needs to be designed in such a way that people can't turn it to bad purposes or that the company itself can't exploit user information. Those are very important things that need to happen. Well, that wraps up this episode of Tech Stuff. If you guys have things to suggest, then I highly recommend you do what these Twitter users did. They reached out to me on Twitter. You can also reach out to me on Facebook. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. So send me ideas of what you would like me to cover in future episodes. I've got a little list growing right now, but I'd always like more submissions. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 